Uh, if you weren't here last week, we started a message uh, on what is a disciple of Christ. As I mentioned, as a lay teacher, I, I rely on uh, other teachers, and in this case, it's Steve Lawson, who uh, wrote the book that's the cover up there. It's a small book. It takes you about an hour, hour and a half to read it. So if you want what I said in words, get this book by Steve Lawson, The Cost, What It Will Take to Follow Jesus. And it's endorsed by uh, R.C. Sproul, John MacArthur, and Paul Washer, all men that we have seen and met down at the Shepherds Conference over the years. And uh, I just wanted to tell you why Steve Lawson wrote this book. This is a book I had to write. Why do I say that? Because I want those who have not yet come to know Jesus Christ to commit their lives to him and become his followers. The greatest joy in life is to know Jesus personally. Only a life committed to him will find ultimate fulfillment. If you are not there yet, my desire is that you enter into a personal relationship with him today. I want to help you make that life-changing commitment. And that's the purpose of today's message. Last week's message, we talked about uh, the crowds that were following Jesus. So let's turn there and look at our scripture that we're studying, Luke 14, 25 through 35. Luke 14, 25 through 35. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. For which of you, I'm sorry, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it, Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and it is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him and saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either to, for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Last week, what we learned was this crowds that were following Jesus was a diverse crowd of the committed, the curious, the confused, the convicted, and the counterfeits. But the Savior calls for anyone to follow him. It's an open arms, compassionate plea. In verse 26, it's a very harsh, harsh words that he talked about. Hating our loved ones. If we hate our... You know, if, you know, that they, they hate, uh, if one of them comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, it's a very hard verse to understand. But Matthew ten thirty seven unlocks that passage for us and says, whoever, is, whoever 
loves their father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And Christ is contrasting the love for Christ should pale in comparison to our love that we have for our loved ones. Christ is first and paramount. Also, we learn that Jesus, we need to love him with our mind, develop affections for him, and those affections will develop a will in our life to follow after him. And we must hate our own life. We must deny ourselves in order to live for Christ. These passages is a very difficult passage from our Lord. He's given it to us, straight talking, telling it like it is. There's no fine print. It's full disclosure and what it takes to be a follower of Christ. We are to be under the master, Jesus Christ himself. He's a divine truth teacher. And as learners, we are to follow him. He also told us we needed to bear our cross daily. And again, whoever, it's an open invitation. And we need Christ daily to follow him. We need his grace because we are sinners. And without his grace, we are lost. So now is the time for salvation. And last, last week, we learned what it is to make a total commitment to Jesus Christ. And there are 12 commitments that we talked about. And i only talk about a couple of them. It's a priority commitment. It's a personal commitment. It's a permanent commitment. And it's an immediate commitment. We all need to make that commitment. Now, turning to today's message, we follow with the rest of the passages, starting in verse 28. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all those who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Anything worthwhile in life comes with a cost involved. And we've all heard the saying, wherever there is no pain, there is no gain. Salvation is offered to you as a free gift from God, but receiving it always comes at a high price. There are no exceptions to this truth. The price to be paid for being a Christian is higher for some than others. We are born into different families, in different places, and in different times in history. But the price, the price will differ from person to person, but there will always be a price. This parable symbolizes those in the crowd who were superficial followers of Christ. They were interested in what Jesus taught about certain topics, but they never considered the ultimate cost and sacrifice. They appear to start well in following Jesus, but tragically, it is all external, and they never genuinely come to know Jesus. This parable represents a vast number of people today In the church, they hear the truth of the saving message of Jesus Christ. They want the benefits of salvation, but they give no thought to making a deep commitment to Christ. They're unwilling to give up the control of their life. So when it comes to making a commitment, they walk away from the crowd that was following Christ. Sadly, this person was never a true disciple. They did not lose their salvation because they never truly had it. 
As 1 John 2.19 tells us, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. What does it cost you to be a disciple of Christ? It will cost you your self-righteousness. You can no longer consider yourself a good person, but a sinner that's broken God's moral law. You are under the sentence of divine wrath and condemnation. You must count the cost of forsaking the sins that you now cherish. You must abandon them for the things of the Lord that truly give life. You do not know where you're... You do not know where following Jesus will take you. Neither do you know the specifics of what will be required of you. But you know who you are following, and you can trust him. You can be fully confident no matter where, no matter what, or no matter with whom. If you will commit your life to Christ, you will gain far more than you will lose. You will lose your old life, but you will gain an abundant life. You will lose this world, but you will gain a far better world to come. You will lose the passing pleasures of sin, but you will gain far better joys in Christ. The positives far outweigh the negatives. Are you ready to follow Jesus Christ? Count the cost. Verse 31. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. To To be a disciple is to submit to a higher authority that is supreme over us. You must come to the end of self Relinquish control of your lives to him. You must give up all personal rights to the governing power of Jesus Christ. If you are an unbeliever, you have no idea what the demands of Christ are for you. More importantly, you are clueless to the danger you are in. Unbeknownst to you, You are at war with the one called Jesus Christ. And even more serious, he is at war with you. This is something that's not taught in a lot of pulpits, but it's taught here in the Bible, in this passage. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war, verse 31. These are two powers in an intense conflict involving each of their kingdoms. This rivalry was so intense and an inevitable battle was about to begin. In this heated clash, only one king will be victorious. These are not equal powers. One ruler is far superior to the other. The lesser king will lose everything and become the slave of the other. The one who suffers defeat will even lose his life. This is a winner-take-all battle. The inferior king must calculate whether he can win with an inferior force. The only logical conclusion is that there is no way he can win. 
If he enters into this conflict, he and his army will be slaughtered. He must act immediately before it's too late. The lesser king is the unconverted in the crowd that day. They preside over their own affairs, their own kingdom. A ruler must think carefully about the issues that are confronting him. Following Christ requires a necessary calculation. What you decide about Jesus has eternal consequences. The other king with the superior force is the one telling the parable, Jesus Christ. On his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Revelation 19.16. He has absolute sovereignty of every person that is living today. He has unrivaled authority. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Matthew 28.18. And the Bible says, And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Daniel told us that in chapter 7, 14. Ephesians 1, 20 tells us, He raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet. This announces his unlimited sovereignty. Philippians 2.9, which we just read. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This states his exalted position over all of heaven and earth and under the earth. This parable is a hostile war between sinful man and God. There is no peace. They are in a severe conflict. The lesser king is at war with the greater king, but the unconverted do not realize they are in a state of war. Jesus said it himself, whoever is not with me is against me. Matthew 12, 30. Paul stated as unbelievers in Romans 5, 10, we were enemies. Colossians 1, 21, we were enemies that were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. Romans 8, 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. This is spiritual treason of the human race against the almighty God. This parable, however, teaches something even more frightening and shocking. Jesus is at war with the unrepentant sinner. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees... Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Matthew 3.10. 
He judges and makes war, Revelation 19.11. Continuing on in verse 14, And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword in which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger, to make a land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. Isaiah 13.9 The Lord tells us in Jeremiah 21.5, I myself will fight against you with outstretched hand and a strong arm, in anger and in fury and in great wrath. Nahum tells us in chapter 1, verse 2, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Ephesians 5, 6. Isaiah 57, 21 tells us, There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. And I like the way the King James does it in Psalm 7, 11. God judges the righteous, and God is angry with the wicked every day. But verse 32, And if not, while the other is yet great way off, He sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. The superior king offers the possibility of reconciliation. We see the compassion of our Lord here. This superior king is coming but offers to end the war with terms of peace. In this parable, the terms of peace are found in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is Christ alone who makes peace Between God and man. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5.1 Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. If you don't have peace, you have war. We have peace because we've been justified by faith. Ephesians 2.17 And he came and he preached Peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. By his substitutionary death, Jesus made peace by the blood of his cross, Colossians 1.20. Ephesians 6.15, this is the free offer of the gospel of peace to those under the wrath of God. Jesus Christ extends to you his terms of peace. He will end the warfare between you and God. This is the offer of reconciliation with God. You cannot cut your own deal with him. He will not negotiate. The invitation to is accept his terms of peace. Accept his offer before it is too late. You must unconditionally surrender your life to him. Verse 33. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. 
Is Jesus Christ saying we must buy our salvation? No, he's not saying that. He was not saying that those in the crowd must purchase their salvation. No amount of material assets can secure a right standing before God. He was not meaning that they must liquidate their material assets in order to buy a ticket to heaven. He was not requiring that they must pay their own way into heaven. The entire Bible speaks with one voice in teaching that salvation is a free gift. Grace is offered without cross through the finished work of Jesus Christ upon the cross. The forgiveness of sins is not up for bid or for sale. No amount of money could buy freedom out of the slave market of sin. The debt incurred by sin against God is simply too great to be moved by any human resources. 1 Peter 1.18 Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. No person in has enough gold or silver to purchase any acceptance with God of any kind. No amount of money can remove sin in the human soul. Grace alone through the cross is the only remedy. Second, Jesus is not saying you must take a vow of poverty to obtain salvation. If you sold all that you had, and then unbelievers would have to feed and clothe you. This would make us a terrible witness for the perishing world. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for his members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than the unbeliever. 1 Timothy 5.8 The money you earn is to be used to feed and clothe your own family. It is shameful if someone else has to provide for you because you gave away all your money. Verse 17 in 1 John 3 If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? And as we studied last week, 1 Timothy 6.10, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. Just remember, there were rich men in the Bible. God saved men in the Bible. Abraham, Job, and it was we learned... On the Wednesday night Bible study, Solomon, the richest man ever to live or ever will live. And Joseph of Arimathea in Jesus' time. Jesus is saying that we are stewards of what we have. A steward is a house manager, one who oversees the possessions of his master. You will no longer be the owner of what you have, but merely the trustee. Let's make this personal. If you are to become a disciple of Christ, your entire life will no longer be your life. Your whole life will belong to him. Your time will no longer be your time. It will be his time to be used for his purposes. Your talents will no longer be your talents. They will become his to be used for his purposes. Your treasure will no longer be your treasure, but entrusted to you for this time in your life. You must recognize that all that you are And have must be seen as ultimately his. In this sense, you can say you have come under new management. 1 John 2.15 Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 
For if all that is in the world, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eye, and the lust for life is, from the, is not from the Father, but is from the world. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Matthew six nineteen. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one or love the other, or he will be devoted to the one or despise the other and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Matthew six twenty four. Let's try and illustrate these points with a story. The pearl of great price. A man sees this pearl, and he says to the merchant, I want this pearl. How much is it? The seller says, it is very expensive. Well, how much? A very large amount. Well, do you think I can buy it? Of course, anyone can buy it. But I thought you said it was very expensive. Yes. Well, how much? Everything you have. All right, I'll buy it. Well, what do you have? The merchant says, let's write it down. Well, I have $10,000 in the bank. Good, $10,000. What else? Nothing more? That's all I have. Nothing more? Well, I have a few more dollars in my pocket. Well, how much? $100. Fine. What else do you have? That's all. Nothing else. Well, where do you live? In my house. You have a house? Give me your house. And he writes that down. You mean I'm going to have to live in my camper? Oh, you have a camper? I want your camper too. Well, if you're going to do that, I'm going to have to sleep in my car. Oh, you have a car. Give me your car. Well, I have two of them. They're mine now. Well, you got my money, my house, my camper, my cars. What else do you want? Are you all alone in this world? Well, no, I have a wife and three children. Yes, I want your wife and your children. I have nothing left. I am all alone. Fine. Now you may have the pearl. It's making the point. Christ offers salvation to you as a free gift. It must be received by faith alone. But true faith involves the complete surrender of your life to Christ. Saving faith is entrusting your entire being to him. Being a disciple is an internal, personal reality. Coming to Christ requires surrendering your life to him, and such a commitment encompasses every area of your life. Everything you are and everything you possess must be seen by this reality. In short, you must come under his new management. Verse 34. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. Salt is good. Everyone knew that. Even in Israel. 
Salt is good because it is useful for human life. Salt preserves meat from spoiling. Salt imparts flavor on otherwise bland food. Salt cleanses what is unclean. Salt even possesses medical properties that heals an open wound. Matthew 5.13 says, you are the salt of the earth. Disciples are to bring a moral influence upon the world. You are to retard the sinful corruption of the world. The penetrating impact of your personal holiness is to be a preventative force in the world. Disciples are not to be the sugar of the earth. But like salt, you are to sting the raw wounds of the world's immorality, producing a cleansing effect upon those around you. Each of these sanctifying aspects was to be pre-produced in your life if you are following Jesus Christ. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Jesus was indicating that not all salt is genuine. Some salt initially appears to be real, but then in reality it is not. In Israel, fake salt was mixed with gypsum, but it looked like salt. This is dressing the counterfeits and the uncommitted of those with a false salvation, a salvation that's not save. Jesus was contrasting a true disciple with a false one. Tasteless salt, Jesus said, had no use. Neither did uncommitted disciples. Those in the crowd with a divided heart were like this fake salt. How shall the saltiness be restored? The answer is it cannot be restored. Real salt cannot become unsalty, neither can tasteless salt become true salt. In time, the counterfeit or the uncommitted in the crowd's true spiritual colors will be revealed. This is what Jesus is teaching in this text. Those in this crowd would soon lose their saltiness, and it will reveal that they were never genuine salt. It is of no use either for the soil or the manure pile. It cannot fertilize. It cannot curb the stench like real salt. It is good for nothing. This is how Jesus described the half committed in the crowd. You are entirely useless to the God and his purposes. You have zero benefit to the kingdom of God. You make no positive contribution to the missions of Jesus Christ. You have no eternal value for the purposes of God. Untold multitudes profess faith in Christ, but do not truly know him. Many are in church, but are not in Christ. Many are religious, but not regenerated. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Isaiah 55, 6. This is the time for you to seek the Lord. He is near to you today. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Luke fourteen thirty five. The crowd heard what he said. It was shocking and it was powerful. And it was crystal clear. It was easy to understand. But most did not hear him. They heard his audible speech, but few actually heard the reality and the truth of what he said. Most who heard him did not actually hear him. Not all heard him with spiritual ears to hear the truth. Why would Jesus say this? Of course they heard them, or did they? They heard the truth with their natural ears, but they needed to receive him 
receive what he said with their spiritual ears. Only then could his words be internalized into their hearts and souls. For to hear but not respond was to not hear at all. To hear but not respond was not to hear at all. So what must we do? What must you know? You need to know the truth. The gospel teaches that Lord Jesus Christ is the eternal son of God who became the son of man. He was sent by God the Father into this world to to rescue lost sinners from eternal destruction under his righteous anger. Jesus was born of a woman and entered the human race and yet was born of a virgin in order to be without sin. He was truly God and truly man. This is what you must know, the truth. You also must know the sinless life of Jesus. He was born under the law in order to obey the commandments that you have repeatedly broken. He alone achieved perfect righteousness, and that is credited to the account of all who believe in him. Through this, God sees all believers as though they have kept the law with full obedience. You must know the sin-bearing death of Jesus Christ. Being sinless, he was qualified to die in the place of guilty sinners. He was lifted up on that cruel cross in order to become sin for all who believed in him. Upon the blood-stained cross, Jesus, who was sinless, bore our sins and secured the salvation of sinners. He is the only way of salvation. And Jesus said it himself in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus alone leads to heaven. There is no other alternative. The Bible says, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Acts 4.12. You must know the bodily resurrection of Jesus. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. On the third day, he raised himself up from the dead. This resurrection was the vindication by God that his death was a fully sufficient sacrifice to take away the sins of all believers. He then ascended back to the right hand of God the Father. He is now enthroned on high, possessing all authority in heaven and earth. And the Bible declares in Romans 10, 13, for everyone, everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. You must know the gospel invitation of Jesus. As Jesus called to the crowd 2,000 years ago, he is calling you to connect to him. He pleads, come to me, all who are labor, all who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. You must respond to this invitation that he issues. And we can only respond by a step of faith and by the Holy Spirit drawing us. This is what you must know. What you must feel. You must feel your need for him. You must feel the weight of your sin upon your lostness without Jesus Christ. 
Without the bad news, there is no good news. If only good news is taught, you produce counterfeits. You have to know the bad news, and you have to feel that bad news to receive the good news. This is how the gospel is designed by God, and the truth is not optional. You must feel this in order to be a genuine disciple of Jesus Christ. You must feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit has come into this world to convict you of your need for Christ. Jesus said the Spirit will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the world, ruler of the world has been judged. John sixteen eight. This work of the Spirit is convince you of your need for Christ in the gospel. The Spirit must press this truth so strongly to your heart that you feel the desperate longing in him. You must feel your unbelief. The Holy Spirit will convict us of sin, Jesus said, because they do not believe in me. The violation of God's word will damn anyone's soul if they do not trust in Jesus Christ for the payment of their sin instead. The Spirit convinces unbelievers of their unbelief in Jesus. Every sin can be forgiven except the ultimate sin. To die in this sin is to commit blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, Matthew 12, 31. And that greatest sin is actually the failure to believe in Jesus Christ. You must feel your lack of righteousness. The Holy Spirit has come to convict the world of righteousness, Jesus added, because I go to the Father and you will no longer see me. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere, repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Acts 17.30. This statement means that Jesus will judge the world in absolute righteousness. All who die in unbelief regarding Jesus will then be judged by him. Revelations 20.12. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Every person without faith in Christ will be rightly and justly judged in perfect righteousness by our Christ. Hebrews 2.2. 2. Every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. You must feel the gravity of this final judgment. Moreover, the Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness because the ruler of the world has been judged. Christ's victory over Satan anticipates his judgment of all sinners. No one will escape the final judgment by Christ. All must stand before him. In an argument from the greater to the lesser, if the ruler of this world has been judged, how much more will his lesser subjects who serve him in the kingdom of darkness? This last judgment is rendered, of course, by Jesus Christ. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, 
John 5.22. If the devil has been judged, so also will all his children of darkness. Do you feel this hopelessness of your salvation before God without faith in Christ? Do you feel unclean, how unclean you are before the Lord? What you must do. You must repent and believe the gospel. Jesus announced to his generation, repent and believe in the gospel, Mark 1.15. The word repentance, as we know, means a change of mind that produces a change of heart and will. This leads inevitably to a change of life. You must have a change of mind. Repentance requires that you have a change of thinking about God, Christ, and yourself. You must see God as infinitely holy God who requires moral perfection in order to enter his presence. You must see yourself as a sinner who has fallen short of the glory of his holiness and thus deserving of eternal punishment. You need to agree with his judgment of your life and finally turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and trust in him wholly. You must then have a change of direction. Repentance also requires that you turn away from your sin, including your own efforts to save yourself. Then in faith, turn to Jesus Christ, who alone is the Savior of the world. This turning involves a decisive about face. It requires a complete reversal. There must be a pivot away from the world and sin. There must be a turning to Jesus Christ alone. You must have a change of will. This is taking an active step of faith to commit your life to Jesus Christ. Faith forsakes all else and trusts him alone for the forgiveness of sin and the obtaining of his righteousness. Faith looks to Christ. Faith trusts Christ. Faith submits to him. Faith loves him. Faith receives him. Without faith, you cannot have Christ. Thankfully, your faith originates with God, and he then bestows it to you in salvation. Have you done this? Have you committed your life to Jesus Christ? Have you turned away from your life pursuit of sin? Have you entrusted your life to his saving hands? Have you surrendered to him who died upon the cross for you? This very moment, the gates of paradise are swung wide open to you. You may come to him through the narrow gate. The Lord Jesus will receive you. He says that whoever, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. John 6, 37. He is calling you right now. He is inviting you to come to him this very moment. Take that final step of faith and come all the way to him. If you become a true follower of Christ, you will have the heavy weight of your sin lifted off of you. You will have the yoke of Christ placed upon you. And Jesus Christ will get into that yoke with you and pull with you. Another thing we learned on Sunday night, I mean Wednesday night Bible studies is Solomon's last words. 
that he wrote in Ecclesiastes 12, 13. Now think about this now. Solomon was considered the wisest man in the world. Not considered. Jesus granted him the wisdom that he would be the wisest man there ever was, will, or was at that time, or will. He also granted him the, the riches of the world, and he became the richest man in the world or ever will be. So here we have the wisest man in the world there ever will be, and the richest man in the world that ever will be. He wrote the Proverbs, Songs of Solomon, and Ecclesiastes, the books of wisdom. What does this wisest man in the world say as his last words to us in Ecclesiastes twelve thirteen? Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Emmanuel sent a text out the other day to some of us men. A very thought-provoking text that fits with this message. If you were accused and arrested for being a Christian, would you be convicted? If you were accused and arrested for being a Christian... Would there be enough evidence to convict you? Would you be found guilty? I pray that this poem I'm about to read becomes everybody's testimony in that court hearing. We don't know who the author of this poem is. I searched on the internet, couldn't find it. It ends, and Steve Lawson ends with this in his book. And it's titled simply, I am a disciple. And I pray again that this is everyone's testimony. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. I will not look up, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I do not have to be right, first, tops, recognized, praised, regarded, or rewarded. I now live by faith, love by patience, live by prayer, and labor by power. My pace is set, my gate is fast, my goal is heaven, my road is narrow, my way is rough, my companions few, my guide reliable, my mission clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, deterred, lured away, turned back, deluded, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice. I will not hesitate in the presence of adversity. I will not negotiate at the table of the enemy. I will not ponder at the pool of popularity, nor meander in the maze of mediocrity. I will not give up, back up, let up, or shut up until I have prayed up, preached up, stored up, and stayed up the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. I must go until he returns, give until I drop, preach until I'll know, and work until he comes. And when he comes to get his own, he will have no trouble recognizing me. My colors are flying high, and they are clear for all to see. I am a disciple in Jesus Christ. Are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? It is a free gift to receive by faith alone, but it will cost you everything. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for these sound 
teaching, straight-talking words where you tell it like it is. You give us the truth. You hold nothing back from us. And we know that you are compassionate and that we know that you do not wish any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I pray that everyone in this room today can say, my life has never been this clear. Now I know the reason why I'm here. You never knew why you were alive until you know what you would die for, and I would die for you. In Jesus Christ's name we pray, amen.